So identity, name, belonging, common words, common uh, themes. But I want to address the common. Two sidebars before we get into the heart of the message. First of all, Emily Dickinson once said to an audience, look, it's good to tell the truth, but when you tell the truth, tell it on the slant. Tell it on the slant. By the way, some of the best African-American pastors get that. Telling it on the slant. The second sidebar is more of an assertion on my part and that is that my sense is that all of humanity is in an identity crisis. I think the world is as lost as it has ever been not just in terms of national identity, and heaven knows this country is suffering from its identity, but individually we have lost our mooring and have been set adrift in a sense of confusion of who am I? Who are we. So those two sidebars will appear in some of my reflections this morning. We have two scripture readings today. One of them is from the lectionary, and of all things, <laughs> thanks, Corey, it's Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 5. Pretty good place to start. Here it is. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, at this point in your respective journeys of faith, you most likely know the rest of that creation story. Here is uh, a bit of a nuance on that text. Most 
people that I encounter who want to talk about creation and creation as it is found in Genesis want to come at it from kind of an enlightenment perspective. That is, they read the text as though it were intended to be a description, a scientific explanation of how creation came about. And so we have all most likely been subject to hearing about, well, what is meant by a day? Is it a literal 24 hours or is it a, an epoch of time and so forth? But we come at it from a very enlightened Greek mindset, trying to figure out the logic of the text, the rationale behind the text. But remember, this text came out of a Hebrew culture. And the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews, were not known to be so-called people of enlightenment. If anything, the Hebrews were people of the story, of the narrative. There were no printed pages on which to examine the text and explore it, take it apart, put it back together again. Rather, it was story. Story passed on verbally from person to person, parent to child, child to another child. It's narrative. So, a bit of a cautionary tale. When you read the Old Testament, in fact, I would probably make the same argument for the New Testament and probably will in a few minutes. Do not come at it as a Greek. Nothing against the Greeks. Come at it with a mindset of a Hebrew. Look, take a picture like uh, Van Gogh's Starry Night. Now, when you come at that, when you first see that, when you see a classic painting like this, where does your mind run first? Gee, I wonder how he did that. It almost looks like paint by number. When he had his canvas, were there numbers everywhere and then he just followed the code for what color should go where? I wonder what he was... Uh, really thinking about, and why did he choose this and, and that? That is not art appreciation. <laughs> art appreciation is to stand back and marvel at beauty, wonder, you don't sit there and analyze this thing, but you appreciate it. You, you enter in to the experience of Van Gogh, his slant on a starry night. You enter narratively, 
and say, ah, wow, wonderful, amazing. From a blank canvas to something new. No one has ever seen this interpretation of a starry night. The least we can do is show up with awe and wonder. So here's the slant. What if Genesis is more like that painting than something else? What if Genesis is more like a proclamation, as though the story, like the painting, says, Hear ye! Hear ye! It's proclamation. In other words, here is the way creation went down. It's not a lesson in logic or up for debate. It's not an engagement in the scientific inquiry by which most of us have been raised. Genesis is simply the opening scene of an epic story being told by God. And just so you don't miss this, you are an epic story being told by God. You are a walking, living, breathing narrative. I don't understand most of you scientifically. I don't get you. I don't get you. But here's what I do get, that you have a story. And that story is significant. So, there was nothing. God speaks. His speech calls things into existence. And all we can do is to stand back and wonder. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, says this Genesis, uh, especially the first three chapters, is really a kind of theology of blessedness. A theology of blessings. What are those blessings? Light, day, water, butterflies, creepy crawling creatures, things that go boom in the night sky. Those are the listings of the blessings of Jesus. Creation is simply a blessing coming into being. And then, of all things, and this is the part I often struggle with, on the final day of creation, on the sixth day of creation, he creates humanity and places them in the penthouse of creation. Why? Because he wants to communicate your ultimacy, but also he needs you and me to stand in awe of the first five days of blessing.
Are you with me so far? Or do I need to go back and start over? No, please, please. <laughs> All right. Here we go on to our second scripture reading from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up in the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, and you recognize these passages, many of you, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! Be glad! For your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way the pers they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay. I want to give this passage a different slant in the hope that I'm telling the truth. What if Matthew 5, especially the opening, the Beatitudes, what if that passage is a mirror of Genesis chapter 1. It's the New Testament version of Genesis 1. Now, don't get theological on me. There's enough preachers in this audience. <laughs> and they're already mounting their argument. You know, we need to get together soon. It's not entirely unreasonable when you stop to think that the Gospel of Matthew was written to what audience? Not Greeks. Not Americans. Hebrews. So you have to ask yourself, how would a Hebrew have heard these words it's not unlike a narrative bear with me historically at least what i've read and what i've heard and i think what i am even guilty of preaching on earlier is that i came at the beatitudes not unlike i came at the commandments it was sort of a achievement-driven understanding of that text. Do's and don'ts of the Ten Commandments echoed in what I heard how I should understand the Beatitudes. Let me put it this way. The Beatitudes can come off sounding like a cause and effect 
if you mourn and mourn hard enough, you will get a blessing. Right? If you are meek enough, you will be blessed. In other words, the Beatitudes come off sounding conditional. Condition saying, if you do this, then this. It sounds reasonable. It sounds logical. But that's the problem. It's too reasonable. It's too logical. And what you ultimately end up with is works righteousness. You want to be a serious follower of Jesus Christ? Then do these things. And then, well, maybe you'll be blessed. Where in the New Testament does it say God loves people, but only if? Where is there a text that suggests that? I think, again, we need to come at this more narratively. The question you have to ask yourself is, how would you know that you're meek enough? How would you know that you've mourned enough? How would you know that in order for you to feel blessed? Oh, finally, I've reached this level, or I've reached this level. Ah, now I feel blessed. Sounds reasonable. I would ask you, how is this good news? How is this possibly good news? I think the key to knowing why this is good news is to read the context in which you find the Sermon on the Mount. And that comes in Matthew chapter 4. Towards the end of chapter 4, it says that Jesus went about the synagogues and the countryside preaching what? Pardon? Good news. Who is he teaching? The description that we find at the end of chapter 4 are none other than people who are poor, diseased, the lame, demon-possessed, paralyzed, no-counts. These are the nobodies, the deficients, the marginalized, the lost, the lame, the losers, they are all, in a sense, blank slates. Blank canvases. In all regards, including spiritually, they have nothing. They have nothing to give. For Jesus to say these, to these nothings, get your meekness, get your mourning, get your mercy game on. It would be like Jesus saying, 
down. Give me 1,000 push-ups and don't take a break. There isn't a one of you in, well, there's probably one of you, but in this room who could give Jesus 1,000 push-ups. It's almost ludicrous to think of Jesus saying it that way. Author Dallas Willard tells the story of a woman that he met after he preached, in fact, on the Beatitudes. And a woman came up to him and told her the story about her son, who was raised in a Christian home, but when he was in his 20s and off to college, he came home one day and declared to his mother, Mom, I'm, no, I'm not a Christian anymore. I, I can't do this anymore. And he says, you know, when I read the Beatitudes, I look at that and I listen to that and I say, I can't do that. I can't do that. It's just too hard. It, it would take everything I have to achieve some kind of unreachable level of competencies in these areas. Well, the rock group, U2, has this great song with this great line in it. Bono sings, you're stuck in a moment and you can't get out. You're stuck in a moment and you can't get out. This would apply to all kinds of situations. But I believe that many of us can be stuck in a moment biblically and experientially. I think we're stuck with understanding some pieces of scriptures in a more logical, systematic way as opposed to understanding it on the slant. So here's my alternative slant. Perhaps Jesus, like God in Genesis, steps out into nothingness, no counts, nobodies, and speaks. And that that speech, like God's speech, is creative speech. From nothing, he calls something into existence. It was a blank slate, a blank canvas, and all of a sudden, starry, starry night. There is a void. There is darkness at the beginning of Genesis. And God speaks where there was nothing. Now there was something. What if Jesus, in a sense, imitates the Father and calling, is calling a new reality into being? You are meek. You 
are blessed. Why? Because I say so. Sorry, no explanation given. It's just the way it is. I'm not here to analyze and give you a rational reason why you are meek or why you are blessed or why you are loved. That's your problem. My only mission, says Jesus, is to declare you a mourner, a meek person, poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So I think what Jesus is suggesting is that this is your identity. This is who I say you are. Oh, I know what you were or what you think you are or what the world thinks you are, but I'm saying to you, good news. What's the good news? The good news is you're already meek. You're already a mourner. That's why you're blessed. And all you need to do, the only thing you need to do, it's the same thing you need to do when you're named a name of significance. It's the same thing you need to do when you speak those ridiculous wedding vows of yours. You need to grow into them. You need to grow into them. You've got a head start. You're already meek. Grow into your meekness. Grow into whatever. This is your and my new identity in Christ. We have been beatituded. Put that in a bumper sticker. It'll sell, at least among first press people. Look, when you, can we bring that up again, those, those beatitudes? Anyway, you know those beatitudes, right? So Jesus said, blessed are you who are meek and so forth, and then you get this. But if you look at the Matthew passage, it says things like, you will inherit the earth, right? Here's, here's what you need to work at, and this is what you get. Read that passage on your own. All the things that you get, if you do that, you already have. You've already inherited the earth. The earth is already ours. There's nothing you can do to sort of add more real estate. You've already got the whole thing. That's, that's the return on living into your status as one who belongs to Jesus Christ. So, where does that all leave us? A story uh, I read a long time ago, I don't remember the story, I don't remember the author, but I remember the scene. The scene is a harsh winter in northern Michigan. The winds are howling, it is snowing like crazy, the snow is deep, there's nobody around except for this single hiker who is hiking, he's lost, he knows he's lost, he feels doomed, 
And uh, suddenly, out of nowhere, was this little clearing, and on this little clearing is a cabin. And he makes his way to the cabin door, and he pounds with all the energy he has left. And the guy inside the cabin opens the door, and he sees this guy, and he says to that guy, who in God's name are you, and what on God's green planet are you doing here? In that line are the two things that you and I spend the rest of our life trying to figure out, answering that question. Who are you? And why, in God's name, are you here? So, I'm going to give you the punchline now. Ready? What follows the Beatitudes is the equally more familiar text where Jesus goes on to say two things. I'll only focus on the one. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now he says that to that audience I described earlier after he declares to them that they are blessed in their meekness and so forth. Here's the thing. What is the light? What is our presence in the world? Our presence is that we are mourners. We are grievers on behalf of the world. We suffer persecution on behalf of God's world. That is our light. Our light is being persecuted. Our light is weeping and mourning and lamenting. That's our light. Your light doesn't come from your status socially, politically. It doesn't come from the party that you belong to. Heavens knows. That's not where your light comes from. Your light comes from being an image bearer of Jesus Christ, who declares that this is who you are in me. So now for the big leap. Communion. Communion. It is said that you are what you eat. The bread, the wine, blessings of God. You take the blessings of God into you. Why? So that your light, your mourning, your lament, your persecution will glow brighter. Are we good? No. Okay, we'll start over.
Friends, as we begin this new year gathered again at God's table of grace, we remember that we too, like Jesus' followers, 